Welcome to the first Nygaard series podcast, where our intent will be to promote an introspective look at various topics in education through conversations with experts in the field who will do their part to provide a unique insight into the best practices, refined ideologies, and pertinent content knowledge related to a given topic. Our goal for this series is to amplify the voices of those who are leading important work and inspiring sustainable change in their communities. This is a podcast that highlights short and direct stories from effective leaders relating personal experience to educationally relevant content. This podcast shows how leaders lean in and do the work. I'm Whitney Luther, a current Butler EPPSP Group 38 student and a co-host for today's conversation. And I'm Matt Molitor, a high-ability teacher in the MSD of Wayne Township in Indianapolis, member of Butler EPPSP Group 38, and the other co-host of this conversation. Welcome to Butler University's EPPSP The Nygaard Series Podcast, Season 1, Episode 3. In today's conversation, we'll explore equity in education, specifically through the lens of a researcher, speaker, facilitator, equity and justice educator, writer, and founder of the Equity Literacy Institute and Ed Change. We'd like to welcome Dr. Paul Gorski. Dr. Gorski, thank you for joining us in this conversation. I'm Uh, excited to be chatting with y'all. It's great. We're incredibly grateful to have you here as we really work to refine our perspectives and the topic of equity in, in education and Today, we're looking to learn, willing to unlearn and and wrap our minds around the sustainable practices, which will lead to genuine change um, in regards to equitable practices and ideologies. So as we begin our conversation, the the series of these conversations that we have had thus far have been all about perspectives of educators from that have walked different paths. And, And your path has taken you to 48 states, dozens of countries, where you've shared your findings through books and articles. Um, so it's built, your, your perspective on educational equity is built upon a broad scope and exposure to different practices in different places, um, which probably presented themselves in you know, a wide variety of form and function. Um, so as we look at, I, I would, we'd like to look at how this vast experience has shaped your lens and your vision for equity going forward. So what, what does this ideal vision look like as we look to 20, 2021 and, and beyond? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds, like a, <laughs> sounds like a kind of a big scope thing, but I, I do wanna say, you know, uh, having that broad view, having been in a lot of schools and districts uh, across the US, all over North America and around the world, it has been really helpful Firstly, and just understanding when people hear the word equity or say the word equity, what they mean. And I know like defining terms is not always the most exciting thing, but, but in this sense, you know, it's really, it's really an important uh, piece of the conversation uh, because my experience just at the most base level has been the problem is not that schools aren't doing things related to equity. The problem is that most of what schools are doing in the name of equity are things that have absolutely zero potential for creating more equity, uh, which is both a problem for equity, but it's also just a general efficiency uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of issue. So my work is really about how do we develop a high integrity 
focused transformative vision for this so that so that we you know so that we're not sort of spinning our wheels and i think some of the spinning of the wheels is actually purposeful because i mean i guess you're in a program that is preparing people to be uh, school leaders i think what leaders get in the present system what leaders get rewarded for is not equity but the illusion of effort toward equity and so what's rewarded are a bunch of things that don't quite get us to equity, but that people might mistake for getting us there. And so being able to sort of pull that apart and say, okay, well, what are these shifts that those of us who are really committed need to make? That's kind of like the center of the work that I do. And, and that's a piece of the conversation I think we're going to drill into as, as we carry on. And you wrote the article, Avoiding Racial uh, Equity Detours. And I think that's that that was really that really resounded with me is with me is I was considering what do we have in place that's unproductive that has the illusion of being productive and what is what is truly making a change and what might might even be counterproductive. So I think that that's a, a really big thing to learn about to unlearn current practices, beliefs, and ideologies in order to move forward. Um, so if if you think about all of this perspective that you've had and where the, where the journey has taken you, where did this path of yours, where did this awakening, where did this, this, this reasoning or this realization that this work has to be done for creating and sustaining equitable practices in schools, where did this begin for you? Well, it's really an interesting question. I, uh, it, was, it has not been, it was not sort of a linear process and there wasn't like a moment of birth for it, but. But I think just over time, even through my childhood, uh, you know, I grew up in a pretty conservative family, but also in a very diverse neighborhood. And I had early mentors who were men of color, who I think that was really important uh, for me just to get a little different window on life. And I think it kind of started really for me in terms of my, my own learning and development when I realized there were things happening in the world that I wasn't, I didn't know how to see operating right in front of me. And that kind of, that was kind of a jolt for me. Um, you know, institutional racism, institutional sexism, those sorts of things that I was learning were operating, but I had never learned how to notice them operating because they were benefiting me. So I, I think that was a big part of it. Uh, I mean, it, in a way, it's a very selfish thing that uh, that the path started just by me realizing uh, or kind of being thrown by how little I noticed and then pursuing my own understanding of that and kind of that sort of opening up this big picture and then I think once I started learning how to see inequities operating and oppression operating uh, just out of a kind of a sense of hyper compassion and hyper empathy that kind of grew into a sense of responsibility uh, to do something about that. So I didn't, I didn't really get focused on that until college, uh, but that's sort of my path there. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I, 
I think about your compassion and empathy that then led you to take action. And so you are the creator of EdChange and the Equity Literacy Institute, which is a group that provides research-based holistic strategies for addressing achievement or opportunity gaps, including the equity literacy framework. And so the framework outlines abilities and examples of knowledge and skills and actions for professional learning related to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, and it's that focused, it's focused on cultivating abilities first in all educators. And so we would love to hear your perspective or tell us more about different actions or practices that you've seen succeeding in providing sustainable change as you've advocated for equity in education. Yeah, um, I, I think some of the tension that we try to get to with that equity literacy framework is kind of the tension between ideology and action and the relationship between ideology and action and how important ideological shifts are because our actions come out of our ideologies. So for instance, if I have a deficit view about uh, black students, Latinx students, indigenous students, and then I see data on uh, that there is a disparity in who's getting suspended or expelled, then it's really easy for me to misinterpret that disparity as being about misbehavior in those students when really research shows that that disparity is about bias in teachers, not black students misbehaving more than white students. So if I have the wrong ideology, I'm never gonna land on the right practice. So I say all of that to say that the first practice is the shift in ideology. The first practice is driving out the deficit ideology, driving out the savior ideology, you know, driving those things out and really going through the process I had to go through, which is learning how to recognize all the ways bias and inequity operate in the wider society, but in, in particular in, in a classroom, in a school, all the kind of subtle ways that it's operating through the curriculum. And it sounds very tedious and that's not, you know, a lot of people don't think of that as a skill. They think of that as just like a sort of an ideological exercise, but it really is a skill because if I'm not able to map out all the ways that inequity is operating, if I don't have that skill and that ability, if I don't have the will to do that, the rest of it is useless. The rest of it gets me nowhere. That's how we end up with grit instead of anti-racism in schools is through bad ideology. So, uh, so I think the first sort of uh, skill or practice is really the practice of, uh, and the ability to map out you know, recognize all the ways that racism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, ableism, all these things kind of operate in very subtle ways and, and um, just everyday things that happen in school. Uh, you know, and, and uh, so that, that's one set of skills or abilities or sort of practices that I, I think are really important. You know, the other thing is I don't think it's so much like here's a set of equity practices. I think there are things like that, but I think the point is here's our set of good pedagogical practices. How do we funnel those all through an equity lens? How do we make sure all of that is informed with this equity commitment so that we're not separating out here's good pedagogy and then here's good uh, equity. So, um, 
So I think in a, in a way, equity is more about having this lens that I can apply to absolutely everything that I do, curriculum, uh, student engagement, family engagement, uh, policy, you know, all of those sorts of things. And, and as, as we look at those first steps where you mentioned that equity is neither optional nor negotiable in the Avoiding Equity Detours article, um, I, th I think my next question was going to be about outlining actionable steps that we can take to, uh, to ensure it ensure that equitable practices and ideologies are in place, but I, I keep leaning back towards uh, undoing those practices that, are, that might already be in place. And I, I was thinking about schools that I, I've been in and, and schools that I've worked in and, and how and ideologies that I've, that I've had, had shared in conversations, how do we ensure that we are empowering those folks to, that we learn and lead with to be willing to unlearn, to be willing to um, change their ideology, in order to in order to be willing to avoid those equity detours. That's a really uh, gosh, y'all are asking really great uh, layered questions here. Uh, that's another great question. You know, I think I'm going to sort of answer that in two ways. I always think you know, for school leaders, uh, the first the first uh, kind of uh, layer of accountability is really in the hiring process. So are you hiring people? I mean, and this is an actionable step too, when you're interviewing people and hiring teachers or whoever it is you're hiring, are you uh, hiring people? You know, we can't expect anybody's gonna come in with some equity purity, you know, none of us has equity purity, but we can interview people and make sure that they're not coming in with a very obvious deficit ideology. So, so that's, you know, and, and that's an easy way to look at it sort of looking forward. That doesn't help the fact that, you know, I might go into a school and become a principal and have all these people who are already there and I can't just fire all of them. So, uh, nor would I want to just fire all of them. So I think they're a big, you know, a few things I would say. One is how important it is for school leaders to model an unbending commitment to equity. I have to model that. How do I model that? I do not allow deficit ideology to go unchecked. I name it every time it pops up. Uh, I make sure people know this is not optional. This is not debatable. This is who we are as an institution. And part of the way that I do that, you know, when I talk in that article about how in, in most schools, I feel like it's probably easier to be a racist than it is to be an outspoken anti-racist. In other words, being an outspoken anti-racist, in my experience, is actually punished more harshly than just going along with racist policies and practices. To me, that is completely a leadership failure. That leadership should reward the people who are the most outspoken. This is how you start changing the institutional culture is you, the people who are the most outspoken about anti-racism, anti-sexism, whatever it is, that they, that they really should, that, that you should make them feel like they are the center of the institutional culture. And the people who are dragging their heels around that, we build every possible bridge, but as soon as it is evident that they are not going to meet us halfway on that bridge, they should literally feel marginalized 
They should feel like I do not belong in this school. And the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they actually pace their whole equity approach in a way that is really comfortable for those people who really have no intention of being engaged. And again, I just think that is a lack of equity will on the part of leaders. It might also be just a lack of equity training. I, I don't know for most leaders how effective the training is. Like, uh, what do I do when a group of teachers comes to my office and is really resistant and is saying, you're making us feel bad and it feels like you're calling us a racist, you know, how, how do I do that? So I think, you know, again, I feel a little weird about this because people always ask me for like steps, like actionable stuff. And I feel like they want something much more concrete. And, and that approach has just never worked. Uh, there are specific things we can do, but those things are not always these concrete things. It's like, well, you know, make sure equity advocates are the middle of your institutional culture. That's not like a one, two, three step process. It's more like, a, you know, I got to figure out how to navigate this uh, kind of process. And, and you've laid out principles of, of equity yes. literacy. So I think, I think that if, we, if people shift their thinking to, to frame it around principles rather than steps, because principles can be applied in in variety of settings and a variety of structures as opposed to steps, which like you said, are linear and your journey wasn't linear. And I don't think it's realistic to think that anybody's journey in this work would be linear because you've got in any school building, you've got so many moving parts that you have to get in line with this. So to get everybody going on the same one, two, three, four step would not be realistic or it might be challenging to do so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely right. It, it's hard in the culture of education for people to let go of tangible, just give me the 10 things I need to implement. Uh, that just feels like part of the culture of education. And it's understandable because here you have uh, all these adults who, you know, uh, their work is very tangible because there are children in front of them, you know? And it's like, I need to know the best thing to do. And I need to know that now I need to know what to do. And, uh, but uh, still, I think we have to kind of, uh, we have to fight the temptation to say, well, let's just find the right thing to implement instead of, okay, what, what is gonna create the bigger sustainable change that we're looking for here? And I think my, my big light bulb went off when it was, when I, I stopped searching for that first step, when I stopped searching for where does my work begin and with, with the, the principles that you've shared, you know, you know, directly confronting these issues and thinking about what, what is going on and not being afraid to have those tough conversations. I think that changed it. That changed it for me where it's not so much about the step that I'm putting in place, but it's about how I look at everything that's put into place with that, with that reframed lens. So whether it's choosing a story that I'm going to read or whether it's looking at my, how my discipline or behavior management system is set up in my classroom, I think it's the shift in how I look at things rather than a step that I need to take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of reminds me of like uh, how popular PBIS became and people thought, well, if we just slot this in, then this is going to take care of all of our problems. But applying PBIS in a school where we haven't attended to racism just means we're gonna apply it in a way that is just going to, 
it's not by itself going to take care of all the equity issues uh, if it's applied through a racist ideology and racist practice is going to just reproduce the, the, the racism. Dr. Gorski, you do a lot of training um, on, on equipping leaders to lead equity in their own schools. You have something that's coming up here in February, an event where you're training leaders to then go back into their spheres of influence to disrupt those inequities. And so as you've interacted with leaders, um, what are we as stakeholders, what might be we, we be missing when we're engaging in the work of equity as we're going back to our schools? Are there some kind of ideologies or understandings or actions that are most overlooked by leaders who are really advocating for equity in their schools? That's a really great, I keep saying that's a great question, but these are all great questions. Uh, I think, you know, I think the thing that's most overlooked is that we need to fundamentally change institutional cultures and ideologies that are so deeply embedded in education. And so often what we're doing instead is leaving that in place and just trying to layer stuff over it. It's kind of like the same example I used with PBIS. I just wrote an article where I kind of talk about something similar with trauma-informed education, the same sort of thing that that we're not sort of fundamentally transforming the things in schools that are requiring us to be more trauma-informed. We're leaving all of those in place and then thinking we could just put trauma-informed education on top of that. And, and that, that's what I'm talking about. So, so for, for instance, I believe that most schools and most schools have a very, if, if, you, if you go into it with the lens kind of looking for it, most schools, despite all the talk about trauma-informed, despite all the talk about SEL, despite all the talk about PBIS and responding to the underlying causes of behaviors rather than behaviors, schools are not doing that. Some say they're doing that, but they're not doing that. They're just taking, they're sort of cherry picking pieces of trauma-informed or SEL, but they still have that same hyper-punitive institutional culture. And equity, that culture is not compatible with equity, but that culture persists in every school, just about every school, even if they're doing these things that are explicitly saying you cannot do that like trauma-informed education. You can't say you're doing trauma-informed education if you're just reactively rule-flinging. You know, oh, here is a, uh, someone broke a rule, let's fling a rule at them. And that's how discipline works. You know, most discipline works in, in, in schools. And, and so the, the problem there is, that is a fundamental problem about just the institutional culture of school. And of course, uh, getting back to equity with this, the people who, the people who end up experiencing the harshest implications of that are students of color, students experiencing poverty, uh, students who are learning English, you know. And so, so all these things are just reproducing that problem. What we need are fundamental shifts in individual ideologies and the institutional cultures that reward those ideologies. And we talked at the very beginning about deficit ideology. It's the same thing. Equity cannot live where deficit ideology lives. So all these things we're doing to raise test scores by fixing kids 
that moves us away from equity, not toward equity. And, and so if we're not, so, and, and again, the problem is research shows that to some extent, most educators have a deficit ideology about at least some group of students who are marginalized. I think that's the biggest thing that's overlooked. We're obsessed with strategies. We're obsessed with whatever is easy to implement. We're obsessed with whatever the shiny new thing is restorative, trauma-informed, SEL, emotion regulation, mindfulness, whatever it is. I mean, and we all should know, by the way, that in 10 years, nobody's gonna be talking about social emotional because we never, nothing lasts that long in education. That's why nobody's talking about emotional intelligence and learning styles now. And when I was in my education program, people were obsessed with emotional intelligence and thought that that was gonna solve all the problem or that learning styles, oh, learning styles is gonna solve all the problems. So, so th I think that's the thing is, is we gotta get away from what's easily implementable and really get at institutionally what's at the root of the problems that are persisting. And we have to change, we have to address those at, at the ideological and institutional roots instead of just thinking, you know, giving teachers a few pedagogical strategies is going to wipe out the inequities. I, I think the one thing that you mentioned was the things passing as if they're fads, right? And we we owe it to all of our students to make sure that this isn't just a passing fad, that this is these conversations are still being had in 10 years. And I, I think that's so true. And, and actually, you just reminded me of something else I should say is that if trauma-informed education was applied not as a fad, but actually as something that was transforming the way we think about how adults relate with kids, it would be the most revolutionary thing that's happened in education in, you know, in my lifetime. But that's not how it's being applied. It's being applied as a program uh, you know, let's give the, the kid this ACEs exam and see, you know, how we could do, you know, add one or two little things. If we really used it to think about how do we relate to kids? How do we traumatize kids in school? Like, where's that part of the trauma? If, if we had that conversation, you know, it could, it could be transformative. It was a, well, usually adults who have these hyperpunitive ideologies uh, which to some extent is probably most adults who work it, those adults are traumatizing kids every day, traumatizing kids, disproportionately kids of color, kids experiencing. So if we looked at it that way and say, well, what do we need to do to adjust that? It wouldn't, you know, these, you know, these, this attention to SEL and trauma informed could truly transform what we do in schools, but, but that's not how they're being uh, used in most cases, unfortunately. Well, it's a paradigm shift. It's how we think about it, not as a program or a, like I said, a series of steps, but if we change how we look at things through that, through that equity lens, and that would change how we look at SEL practices. And that would change how we look at PBIS practices or our discipline systems, because that would force us to reconsider the impact and the implications on all of these marginalized students. Right. I, th I think. And yeah. One, the one there's a line that I that I've been I've been staring at and staring at and staring at in your um, equity equity detours article about what what do trauma informed practices look like for students whose primary source of trauma is the racism they experience at schools and that's we're, if we're perpetuating these practices it doesn't matter how trauma informed we are or 
if, if they're all, if we're still perpetuating those other traumatizing practices. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think you're right. It's a paradigm shift. It's very well put. So as we've explored this and as we've looked into these shifts that need to be made and how we see things, how we evaluate our practices, that the guiding set of principles that you've laid out, and, and let, let's look to your learning. What is one thing that you are currently exploring for yourself to, 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 to continue to grow or to continue to change or ensure that this work stays and it is, is utilized in the present? You know, when I sort of came through my early processes of learning these things, the, w the way that that learning was often structured was very segregated by issue. So, uh, so like if I took a graduate course on educational equity, there might've been this week we're talking about race, next week we're talking about class, the week after that. And, and so I kind of grew up with this very kind of segmented way of uh, looking at things. And so, uh, and I know intersectionality theories become really popular and, and I've been sort of kind of focused on doing that a little better, but very specifically about some intersections like intersections of ableism and racism uh, and looking at how critical race theory and critical disability studies, you know, how you know, looking at how the kind of overlaps and those things can just give me a different lens to understand uh, things a little bit more structurally. Uh, so that's something I'm definitely looking at. Those, uh, you know, there's so much there with students of uh, color being, uh, being disproportionately overrepresented for uh, in special education among students who really don't belong in special education, but then at the same time being underrepresented and uh, for getting uh, special education services among students who actually need special education services. So kind of how do I understand that more complexly? Well, how do I pull some tools together from, you know, these looking at how these different oppressions have been addressed. Uh, so I've definitely been working on that uh, probably more than anything else. As you think about the things that have really shaped your perspective and your experiences, do you have a recommendation of some books that you think would be really helpful for people who are engaging in, in leading equity in their schools and in their communities and someone that you think would be helpful to follow as we continue to shape our, our ideologies and um, impact our communities? Yeah, the person, that, I think the person that I really enjoy, I mean, there's a bunch of people I enjoy following, so, so it's hard to kind of nail it down to one person. But recently, I, I really love Dina Simmons and the work that she's doing. Uh, and I think part of that, her work and my work overlap in some interesting ways. But um, I think the way that she's been really outspoken about uh, and, and been just so um, on point about addressing uh, equity and inequity in these kind of popular programs and initiatives like SEL and trauma-informed uh, education. So Dina Simmons, I, I think would be a good follow, uh, would be a recommended follow. Uh, for a book, 
you know, I, I'm going to actually make two recommendations. The book that had the biggest impact on me is actually this book right behind me called Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell, which is kind of an old, older book. I think a new edition came out uh, pretty recently. Uh, it's not specifically about education, but it, it kind of lays some of the groundwork for critical race theory. It, it talks about this idea of the permanence of racism, which is kind of about shifting our view from thinking about racism as a series of things that happen and I need to respond to those things to thinking about racism as something that is kind of drenching everything. So if I want to be a threat to the existence of racism, I have to be proactive and looking at how it's just constantly operating around me and not just sitting back hoping that nobody uses the N-word so I don't have to address it. Um, something that's a little bit more contemporary. Uh, I, I really love Cornelius Minor's book, uh, We Got This. I love Cornelius Minor in general. He's just one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, but he, he uh, you know, he just has so much amazing experience. And he has, this, he has a very clear kind of equity and justice perspective. Uh, but it's, but he's also really good at pushing people on that while kind of embracing them at the same time, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is a, sometimes feels like a really hard thing to do. So we got this by Cornelius Minor, which is powerful, not just in its content, but also in its form uh, as a book. So those would be my recommendations. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um... And Dr. Gorski, we are just so grateful for your time and sharing your experience um, as an equity and justice educator and as an advocate. And so we just thank you for sharing your experience and your scholarship with us to ensure equity in education. So we look forward to um, learning more about your work in the future. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Whitney, Matt, it was great talking to y'all. To learn more about the work of Dr. Gorski, visit the Equity Learning Institute at equitylearn.com, the virtual learning portal of the Equity Literacy Institute. There you can find access to several courses and recorded webinars. In addition to the course and webinars, many of the books and articles published by Dr. Gorski and the Equity Literacy Institute's team can be found at equityliteracy.org. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The Butler University's EPPSP, the Nygaard Series podcast, would like to thank Butler University's College of Education and EPPSP Program Director, Dr. Deborah Lethbider. A special thanks to Will Rogers, EPPSP Group 39, for composing and performing today's music. And thanks to Ethan Kuhn, EPPSP Group 38, for editing the podcast series. For additional podcast episodes, subscribe to anchor.fm backslash butler-eppsp. Thank you for joining us.